we'll be at a few places. But before we begin, I, I just kind of want to give us an overview or an introduction to the concept of the Bible and people's interactions with the Bible. At some point in your spiritual walk with uh, with God, we all feel this pressure to engage with our Bibles more. Uh, no real Christian can neglect the daily reading of their Bible if they want to move to the next level of maturity is what you've been told. We've heard this um, really pounded into our spiritual hearts and minds. When we go weeks or even months without reading our Bibles, we wonder if something is wrong with us, if something has become more important than consuming uh, the most important book in history. I've had people even question their assurance. How do I know that I can be saved if I really don't have a desire to read God's word. There are conflicting beliefs around how much time in the Bible is sufficient to ward off these annoying thoughts that we wrestle with. 30 minutes a day somehow has become the standard high watermark for the average Joe or the average Jane Christian who wants to live a good, mature Christian life. Most people don't read their Bibles uh, consistently or at all. So if I can squeeze 30 minutes in, I'm clearly doing better than the rest of people in Christendom around the world or in history. And for those who have discovered grace and the joy or sanctification by, by being brought to us by the spirit, you may not feel the pressures that I have probably just described. You realize that God has provided the ordinary means of strengthening our faith. That is the public preaching of God's word, the sacraments and prayer. That's what God uses to mature his children, not the personal efforts of so-called spiritual acts that have been handed to us. God's word is absolutely important to the confessionally reformed historic understanding of scripture. But because of the history of maybe your experience with Christianity or even the history of our country, and most likely the way that you were raised, the, your view of the Bible can still bring frustration and confusion at times as you're trying to learn how to rest in Christ at the same time interact with the Bible. There's this little voice that crawls up into your head once in a while that asks this little question, are you sure you're doing enough? Are you sure you shouldn't be reading your Bible more? Maybe I should read my Bible more. That's the conclusion we come to. You decide to pick up the Bible, and within three minutes, you have more questions than you have answers, and you are reminded of why you struggle to read your Bible and why it's hard for you to focus in on a consistent daily Bible reading. Because you have all of these confusing statements, confusing stories, and even these wild characters that do, let's just say, rated R acts, if we were to put them in the movies. Well, so we, we run to what is familiar to us. The instruction passages, Proverbs, or the New Testament, epistles, where we are looking for the passages that we can apply to our days, to our everyday life. And, you know, for instance, the, the, the ones that apply to us, to our society. Um, so this is what we end up running to. And it's here we also misinterpret some famous passages, because I know one of the arguments that I receive often is that, John, we are told that we need to be consuming God's word. And so the, the passages that are often handed to me, 
are Psalm 119. It says, I have stored up, or if you've used to the, the King James, I have hid in my heart. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the word of God must be memorized. It must be consumed on a daily basis because it's what prevents us from sinning. Or even Galatians 5.16, it says, but I say, walk and walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we translate these to mean the more I consume God's word faithfully, the less that I will sin. And these same men who wrote both of these verses also had struggles with sin. David, he had his greatest fallout when he committed adultery and murder. And yet the author of Psalm 119, or even Paul, who wrote to the Romans, Romans chapter 7, about his own life. This isn't before uh, he was a Christian. This is while he, he, after he was regenerate, after he was brought to life. And Paul says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my member another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin, making me captive, keyword, to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So Paul is describing his own war that he feels, yes, I love God's word, but it Still, I still have this struggle within me. So did these men not listen to their own advice? (laughs) That would be my question. How is it that they could write these instructions and yet fall prey to the same, fall prey to temptations themselves? Is it uh, because we still live, I'm sorry, it is because we still live within bodies that are affected by our depravity. Yes, we've been brought to life, and yes, we've been freed from the bondage of sin, meaning that we do not have to obey it, and we aren't held accountable for it. But that doesn't mean all effects and resemblance of sin is gone. We have not been fully set free from our current corruption. Otherwise, we wouldn't have these helpful passages to tell us how to deal with our corruption. And so we are waiting for Christ's return. Because the promise is what he has begun in us, Romans 8, he will complete this perfect work. And one day we will be glorified. We will have sinless body. All things will be made new. So our hope is this greatest comfort that we have, that we are going to be fully glorified once Christ returns. Well, I'll quickly just go back with me real quick to Psalm 119 and Galatians 5 for a moment. There is something they both have in common, and, and, and it is how they deal with sin and the flesh. Both of these mention something, but in different ways. David says he hides or stores up the word of God, and Paul says walk by the Spirit. And both of these actually say doing the same thing, but they're, 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 they're saying the same thing, but they're, 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 I'm sorry. What they're calling you to do is the same thing, but in, in approaching it in a different way. They're pointing us to what we do with God's word, not how we consume it. That's the key. The key is it's God's word, not the way in which it's consumed. You don't hold tightly in your heart and mind that which you don't believe. That's just normal for us. Promises given to you become precious when you believe them to be true. 
So we play the promises over and over in times of despair because they provide strength and comfort to us. No matter what the promise is, it doesn't have to be a scriptural promise. It is not the act of reading the promises that provides us hope or the promise. So you aren't guaranteed the promise because you you read them. You are guaranteed the promise if you believe them. That's the difference. This goes for Galatians 5 as well. Paul uses this phrase, walk by the Spirit. And then uh, the question is, what does he mean? (laughs) This is a question I asked the men this last week at Men's Bible Study. What do we mean by walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh? Well, Paul says the way we fight temptation is by walking by the Spirit. And what he means is to live, live our lives in a way, as we, as we would say, as we walk, we live each day believing the promises of who we are in Christ by the Spirit. We do not have anything that's not been given to us by the Spirit. So your, your focus is on what, on who you are and what you have been received from Christ and what Christ has done. Walking by the Spirit is not focusing on what you are doing but it's focusing on what's been done for you. So you're, you're, you're hiding this in your heart and mind, believing, believing that it is true. Sorry, I have a hair on my face. Believing it is, believing it's true and trusting in the promises that have been given to you. So you, another way to say walk is to live. We live every day in the promises that's been given to us by the spirit. And he says, when we do this, then we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, of course, we all fail to do this perfectly. This is why we are called to confess our sins to one another. First um, John. But this leads me to why I started down this road of Bible reading in the first place. We have been trained to treat the act of reading our Bibles like a spiritual rabbit foot. We will be better prepared to fight sin and temptation the more consistent we are at reading our Bibles every single day. We've even been told Bible reading is putting on the armor of God. The struggle with sin in life happens because we have wavered in our duties. So we equate walking by the Spirit and hiding God's Word with the act of reading God's Word. So my goal this morning is not only to release this pressure from you, but provide you motivation to properly engage with God's word so you can truly have the benefits intended for all of God's children and why God even gave us his inspired word. So let me ask you this. What is the most important truth we have when it comes to our relationship with God? Most important truth. The good news of the Bible is that we can be rescued and adopted into his family by what? Faith alone. That is the the most important truth that you can walk away with in the Bible. It's the focal point. It is the point of Scripture, the story of redemption. Sinners are saved if they believe in Jesus Christ by faith alone. You can... that. I don't think you can replace that truth with anything else. There's a lot of important things, but I think that is the most important truth. The second truth that is just as important as the first is that it is by faith in Jesus Christ that we continue the relationship. 
with the Father. So we come into the relationship with the Father through faith, and we continue this relationship by faith. Our primary our primary responsibility is to continue to believe in Jesus Christ. So it is what Christ has done for us is where we place our faith, not in what we are doing for him. That is the biggest difference. It is what Christ has done for us, not what we have done for you, for him. So if we believe that our faithfulness to read our Bibles is what protects us, you are now putting your faith in your action and not in Christ's on your behalf. God never looks at your obedience to accept you as his child, so neither should you. God also never looks at your spiritual acts to protect you. His protection of you is guaranteed in his power. This is why he says, nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ in in, in Jesus Christ, including your inability to consistently read scripture. There's nothing that's going to separate you from this. This is why it's called gospel or good news. With this knowledge, we can have hope because the hope is what we say extra nose. It's outside of ourselves. It's not something that we have to conjure up within us. So with this knowledge, I want to point us back to our Bibles for just a moment and our interaction with our Bibles. So when it comes to instructions for what you must do as a Christian, we clearly have things that we should and should not do that we are to obey. Um, there's there's quite a few of them. And as we go through Scripture, uh, you know, one of those is to use the ordinary means of grace and to love one another and to care for one another. I mean, there's so many instructions. So when you look at the instructions, it's probably, if you were to take them on a word count basis, you're looking at three to five percent of your Bible is instructions for the Christian that you need to be obeying. Okay. That you're going to read and learn to obey. Those, those can also be called imperatives and it's, it's imperative instructions to do something. And verses like this, we've all seen them. Um, these are typically either pro, do this, or a con, don't do this. Now, you now the rest of the Bible, we have to add, that's only three to five percent of your Bible. The rest of your Bible, what is it about? This is 95% of your Bible is primarily narrative. That's the rest of your Bible. And to put it, to put it simply, 95% of your Bible is a story, a story that's unfolding for you and about you and for your faith. So if you haven't realized this about your Bible, we spend 95% of our time concerned with 5% of the Bible. This is where we really focus our time and, and our energy as Christians. And some might argue that these are the most important and revel, uh, relevant parts of our Bible, which is uh, for believers. Well, let me, let me read this to you real quick. It says, this is from Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Now, at this point, he's mostly referencing the Old Testament. He's, the, the, most of the New Testament hasn't been written here. Um, maybe some of the Gospels, even those are written later. He says that, that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So if 95% of the Bible is a story, what does Paul mean when it is profitable for good works, even for righteousness? Where does our motivation come from 
to perform these good works. They come from the confidence and assurance that we have in the hope the Bible provides. As our faith is strengthened in Christ, so does our desire and our ability to obey him. We do not obey to strengthen our faith. Our faith is strengthened so that we can obey. Somehow we've always reversed this. The more I discipline myself, the more faith I will have, and therefore I can obey. It's the exact opposite. Our obedience comes from our faith. This is Galatians chapter 3, when Paul tells the Galatians, how foolish have you been? You've been bewitched. To think that you begin by the Spirit and now perfecting yourself by the law, their own obedience, their own efforts. So 95% of our Bible is how, about how we have, re, have every reason to trust in the promises of God. 95% of your Bible was given to you so that you would read page after page and see love and mercy and the faithfulness of God who saved you. The Bible was given to us so that we would live our lives learning to trust the God of the Bible, the God that we are putting our faith and trust in. So our time with God's word is to be focused on the actual text of the Bible. And if you're doing that from cover to cover, then the majority of your time, you're going to be reading not about you and your responsibilities. That's only 5% of your time. So the majority of the book is not about you. And about what you must do. It's 95% about what God, what God has done for you on your behalf. So this isn't a long lesson this morning. Before we conclude this morning, I want to help you and, and encourage you with your Bible, whether it's through reading it or listening to it on audio or, or hearing it through preaching. We often struggle with the details that are given within the Bible. Why all the dietary laws and the ceremonial laws and some of these weird details of stories that are, I mean, you hear about the exact kind of clothing that they wore and their hair. I mean, there's, there's a lot of details. With all of this death and crazy people doing magic spells and causing dead bones to come to life, what do you, what do you do with all of this? This is the short answer that we will be unfolding. I'm excited about later this summer. We're going to really be unfolding this later in a series. But in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise to Eve. This is going to help you understand how to categorize your Bible, 95% of it, how to, how it can become for your faith. Not about you, but for your faith. In Genesis 3.15, God made a promise to Eve. That her seed, that is a child that would be come from her, born of a virgin, would crush the head of the servant that deceived her and receive the punishment that Adam and Eve deserved. That was the promise God gave them at the beginning of the story. Of course, God meant that the one who would be their deliverer would be a human because it's coming from, come from Eve. So how would they know once the snake crusher showed up? How do they know what man this is looking for, what they're looking for? Well, every piece of information that comes from Genesis 3.15 forward is to help you identify the Messiah, the, the, the chosen one that's coming from God to crush the head of the Satan, to receive the penalty of Adam and Eve. So if you're going to bank your entire eternity on one man, you better be 100% sure you have the right man. 
Um, you, you better be absolutely, you cannot have one sliver off because that one sliver is what could damn you for the rest of all of eternity. So page after page, you see two themes unfolding. God is faithful to keep his promise to Adam and Eve. All and all of humanity that has followed into the footsteps of their first parents, Adam and Eve. Those are the two themes. Instead of worshiping God for who he is, they replace him with almost anything they can get conceive of. Time and time again, God would prove his love and power to them, and they would not, and then they would take it in, in turn and turn it into something wicked, worshiping idols or worshiping animals. So for those of us reading this story, we have more details than we could ever possibly unfold in one life to prove to us that the Messiah actually came. And it took thousands of years to prove it and have it unfold. So here are a few of the details. I'm just going to kind of lay it out for you real quick, and then we'll use this to see how we should be engaging our Bibles. So in Genesis 3.15, you have the promise of the Messiah to come. The whole world becomes wicked, so bad that God tells Noah, I'm destroying everybody. But that means if he destroys every single human, the promise of the seed from Eve would be broken. So what does he do? He makes a covenant. And in this covenant, he he makes a covenant with Noah and he preserves Noah and his family. So the seed goes, continues through Noah. And then you have Abraham shows up on the scene and God makes a promise that through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, now we have a little bit of a narrowing. Well, now we know it's least coming from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because those are the sons of the line that's being passed down. So we're starting to see, okay, it's going, we're seeing a narrowing of it. Well, then we are given within, uh, uh, right after the Egypt, we're given the Mosaic law. Or the Mosaic covenant. God makes a covenant with, with Israel and says, if you obey this covenant, you can stay in the land. But there's a really important part of the Mosaic covenant because we are told in a covenant later on with David or a promise made with David that the king who perfectly upholds the law will inherit the eternal kingdom for everyone in the kingdom. So now we have a real narrowing down. It's the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's now going to be the son of David and the son of David who perfectly obeys the law. And then we are told in the prophets that there's a new covenant. There's a new promise coming that will go do away with the old promise. And that new promise is that the blood of animals is not sufficient to take away the sins of the world. And in this new covenant, there will be one man and his sacrifice will be sufficient to take away the sins of all of his people. And the new covenant promises that the law will be completely fulfilled and not needed anymore because Christ, the Messiah, the chosen will come and fulfill it. So when, at, when Matthew starts to write his opening line, he tells us that we have the lineage of the man that was born the virgin. And we, we learn this from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is he's sitting on the throne because he's the son of David. And what does Jesus prove his entire life? He proves that he perfectly obeyed the law and he fulfilled the new covenant. That's the, the whole story. That's the whole thing. Just in a, in a quick nutshell. So from, from Abraham to the, uh, sorry, from Genesis to the new covenant, the entire story of the Bible is wrapped up for us. And this is why I mention all of that. 95% of the Bible is for you to read it and see what God did 
and trust him. Trust him. Because the more trust that you have for him and the promises, when he gives you instructions to love your neighbor, to give and to be kind and gracious, you have every reason to trust that those instructions are good and right and that you'll come from a heart of desire and a place of resting because God is always faithful to fulfill his promises. He never looked at the works of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were swindlers. He didn't look to David, who failed him. He never looks to men to guarantee them their hope. He points to those men and said, see their faith, Hebrews 11, their faith justified them. Their faith throughout the ages is what caused them to be right or declared right in the eyes of God. So my encouragement to us is as we engage in the word of God, that we do so understanding that all of God's word was given to us. 95% of God's word was given to us so that as you engage it, your faith is increased. So as you read your word and as you engage in God's word, understand that it's not the act of reading that creates within you protection spiritually. It is trusting in the promises that are being revealed to you in God's word, believing the promises, not reading them, believing the promises. And we are told that it's through the preaching of God's word and the sacraments and prayer that God bolsters our faith. Because why would you pray to someone you don't trust in? And the Old Testament gives us every reason to trust in Christ and his sufficiency for us. So I hope this was encouraging for you today. Uh, let me close with a prayer and um, hopefully we'll be able to meet with each other soon. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the hope that we have. May we consume your word that our faith may be strengthened. Give us uh, the strength that we need to continue as we're set apart from each other. We trust in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.